as we'll see, is, is very bitty in some ways, I think partly self-consciously so. Chapters 6 to 11, or at least the second half of chapter 6, up to uh, chapter 11, has all sorts of bits and bobs in it. And uh, we've tried to uh, get a feel for the second half of Ecclesiastes by suggesting that there are three things that uh, dominate the second half of the book that the uh, teacher who wrote the book says he just can't see. Three things we can't see. Last week we uh, looked at how he says he can't see the future. And that's a deep frustration to him. This week we're going to see uh, how he explores the idea, the reality, that he can't see justice, true justice. Let me just read to you a couple of verses Get us into um, what he's saying. Well, first is in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, on page 673 in the Church Bibles. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, he says. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Then turn with me to the end of Ecclesiastes, strictly speaking beyond our passage, uh, the limit of our passage, but an important verse, the very last verse of the whole of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, I'll read verses 13 and 14 on page 677. At the end he says, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Let's ask God to help us understand that, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we pray for insight and understanding and clarity and a willingness to respond to the things that you want to teach us this morning. Please take this ancient word and apply it to the world that we live in, to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone who's been to our house knows that our house is a noisy place to live in. I don't know whether, maybe we're unusual, but I, 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 when the whole family's at home, it is almost never quiet. And a very large proportion of the time, the noise focuses around disputes. Disputes about justice. I was here first. He hit me, so I hit him back. She got more, got more than me. That's not fair, those sorts of things. I wonder, how is it that children know about justice? Uh, well, certainly I think children are taught the finer points of justice by uh, their parents and by discovering about the world they live in. But it seems to me that all human beings actually have the basic concepts of justice hardwired into them. They're born with an instinct for justice. Anyone uh, who seeks to support their actions knows that they will get nowhere if they do not justify them. 
We must seek to demonstrate our actions are just if we want people to be on our side. Both sides in every war always claim that uh, justice is on their, uh, on their side. Nowhere's that more painful at the moment than in the Middle East. With Jews claiming that they are defending their national security, Palestinians claiming that they are avenging assassinations and uh, summary evictions and oppression. Everyone claiming that they're in the right. I'm reminded actually of the story of the Jewish rabbi who was um, judging a marital dispute and first he heard the wife who claimed that it was all her husband's fault and the rabbi concluded, you are right in what you say. So then he heard the husband and the husband put his side of the story and the rabbi said, you are right in what you say. So uh, finally an onlooker said, Rabbi, surely the husband and the wife can't both be right, can they? The rabbi thought for a moment and then said, you are right in what you say. In our complex world of uh, claims and counterclaims, actually justice is very elusive. And yet from the cradle to the grave, we long for it. A teacher in this uh, book, Ecclesiastes, has been longing for justice. In the first half of the book, up to chapter 6, verse 9, we, uh, we saw him over a number of weeks systematically searching for meaning and satisfaction in his life. Especially in the latter part of that struggle, we saw it was partly the reality of injustice which robbed him of peace in the world. In chapter 3, for instance, the, uh, the blunt fact of wickedness destroyed the satisfaction that he was searching after and felt he'd had got within a fingertip's distance from in uh, pursuing the natural rhythms of life. Do you remember um, uh, after that beautiful poem, he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, I saw something else under the sun besides the beauty of uh, the way that the world works. In the place of judgment, wickedness in the way was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. That's the way the world is. And it's deeply tragic. As I said at the beginning, we began to see last week how in the second half of, uh, of this book, uh, the, the teacher becomes, in one sense, calmer about... Uh, uh, his meditations, but also more disjointed and even contradictory in his thoughts. It's almost as if he's begun to accept that this world is actually a confusing, topsy-turvy place that we can actually only come to terms with if we, we live our lives with a mishmash of, uh, of uh, different bits of wisdom for different situations. The risk of ruining the, the, uh, the, the flavour of what he's trying to say and uh, we're going to try to organize his uh, thinking a little bit, remembering all the time that actually I think his thinking is self-consciously disorganized because that's the way the world is. But we're going to pick out three uh, key themes. Last week we saw that he can't see the future. Next week we'll see he can't see the way the world really works. This week we're going to see that he can't see justice. Justice, he says, is always elusive. It escapes us. 
That's what he was saying in chapter 7, verse 15, wasn't he? In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Surely, he says, righteous people should live long and be rich and be happy. Wicked people should die young in misery. That's the way it should work, isn't it? But what happens? Robert Mugabe lives into old age, enjoying power and wealth, while his honest and righteous young, young lieutenants were either exiled or died years ago. Saddam Hussein is still in power, while all that remains of the thousands of innocents that he slaughtered is, is dry bones. There are rich drug dealers in this country, in this city perhaps, who will probably never be caught, while young drug addicts in this neighbourhood, who just actually wanted to ease their misery, die. There is no justice. More than that, he says, anyway, there is no one righteous. Verse 20 of chapter 7. There is not a righteous man on earth, he says, who does what is right and never sins. So chapter 7, verse 29, contains his conclusion. Just over the page. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. That's the problem. See, we were made to be just. We know it. We long for it. We expect it of others. But neither they nor we deliver. There is no one righteous. And then he says in chapter 9, to cap it all, death treats us all exactly the same, righteous and wicked, whether we are Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa. We are all treated the same. Chapter 9, verse 1, page 674. So I reflected all on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. There is madness in their hearts while they live and afterwards they join the dead. As he meditates on uh, this final injustice, that all people uh, die and uh, are equal in their death, he does decide, perhaps, it's better to live in the world of injustice than to die. But only just, he says. Chapter 9, verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. The living know, here's a pessimistic thought, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
They have no reward, even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Jean-Paul Sartre, who said that uh, you know you're living and alive when you make decisions, he says, well, perhaps we can uh, at least do something while we're alive, even if it's hating. When we're dead, there's nothing left to do. Better to be a live dog than a dead lion. That's life in all its gruesome horror. As the message on the t-shirt says, life's a bitch and then you die. Moreover, he says, not only is justice always elusive, injustice corrupts us. We are tempted to behave unjustly and in, in, in uh, its turn that behaviour damages us as individuals. Back in chapter 7, verse 7, for instance, he says, extortion turns a wise man into a fool. A bribe corrupts the heart. More dangerously still, he says, not only are we damaged as individuals, but the whole of society is damaged by injustice. Okay. In, nine, in chapter 9, verse 3, he already said that our hearts are full of madness and evil while we live, didn't he? But in chapter 8, verse 11, he says that that, that, that evil madness is actually multiplied if society is unjust. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Injustice, he said, is remarkably fertile. It breeds, it multiplies at an amazing rate. William Golding's uh, frightening book, Lord of the Flies, portrays a group of boys on a desert island who, uh, without the restraints of... Uh, Justice, descend into tribalism, and finally murder. When he was interviewed once, William Goldwyn said he got the idea from observing a classroom full of boys. We're never very far from terrible lawlessness, you know. If we wanted evidence of that, just a couple of years ago, near here, there was a, uh, a group of young men who had dropped out of society and, and, and started to live in, a, in, a, in an underworld by their own rules. They actually used to hang around um, St. Mary's Road. And one day the leader of that group decided that he would murder one of the other group members. Just because he felt like it. So he did. After he killed that boy and left his body on Angel and Greyhound Meadow, he took the rest of the group to see the body and laughed and joked about it. We just don't realise in the absence of restraint of justice how corruptible our hearts are. 
The hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. That's an extreme case, but I can tell you on a smaller scale, family after family after family, where children are brought up in chaotic world where there is no justice, grow up angry and frustrated and violent and antisocial. Now the absence of justice in this world is deeply corrupting to us. So, says the teacher, that's the reality. Justice is always elusive. Injustice corrupts us. So how should we live? The teacher's answers here are actually distinctly cynical and they are far from complete answers, but they are worth looking at because they are words of wisdom in a world where we can't at the moment see justice. First answer he gives is enjoy life. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. He said this sort of thing on several previous occasions, if you've been studying uh, Ecclesiastes with us. But on uh, the previous occasion, uh, occasions, he's always concluded that even... Enjoying life is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But as his meditation has matured, as he's gone on through this book, it seems that he has become more resigned to this advice. Frankly, he said, in a world where there is always going to be injustice, it's not bad just to seek a bit of enjoyment sometimes. rather similar to Jesus's apparently rather callous response when someone, um, uh, when a woman poured um, a, a, a liberal amount of expensive perfume onto him. Jesus's friends protested. The money could have been used for the poor, they said. Surely, Jesus, you who stand for justice, you should be fighting inequalities in this world, not, not luxuriating in this uh, perfume that has been wasted on you. And Jesus' reply is, the poor you will always have with you. There may be another day when they need to devote their energy to fighting for justice. But that day is not the day. It's quite wrong to think that all of our energies 
should be obsessively poured into fighting injustice. The odd extravagant gesture, the occasional bit of luxury, enjoying the uh, pleasures of drink and clothes and cosmetics and marriage that Ecclesiastes mentions all of here, is not wrong. Utter obsession with injustice will destroy us. I remember once a woman that, that I knew who used to become overwhelmed with the suffering in the world. I remember she told me once that she was playing on the beach with her children uh, on a summer holiday when suddenly she thought of the starving millions. And she was so grief-stricken that she was unable to interact with the family at all. Now that way lies mental illness, says the teacher. Somehow we have to live in this world of injustice without being overwhelmed by it. One of my heroes is, um, is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. There's a man whose whole life has been dedicated to, to fighting injustices in, in, in South Africa. And he's a man who's absolutely full of joy. When you hear him interviewed, he always, always has laughed at the ludicrous uh, aspects of the apartheid regime. Now he's shed tears, he's been deeply angry as well. But actually, he knows that we destroy the power and horror of injustice to a certain extent if we just laugh at it if we refuse to let it overwhelm us. The devil, actually, loves to completely depress us about injustice in this world. Now, says the teacher, in this topsy-turvy world, it's not bad sometimes, if you can enjoy life, to do so. Teacher's second uh, bit of advice is equally interesting. Don't be obsessed about your own righteousness. That's back in chapter 7, verses 16 to uh, 18. Do not be over-righteous, he says, having just meditated on the injustices in the world. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Now there's an interesting little verse, isn't it? That question, why destroy yourself, may either imply a physical or perhaps mental breakdown. In modern terminology, I think his advice is, don't develop an obsessive compulsive personality. There are dangers, he says, of, of, of completely abandoning righteousness. We certainly shouldn't do that. Verse 17, don't be over wicked, do not be a fool. Why die before your time? There is some order in the world, despite its injustice, he says. A life devoted to wickedness is likely to be nasty, brutish and short. Don't be a fool. Be good, he says, but not too good. 
pastor friend of mine was once dealing with a, uh, a young man who was obsessed with filling in his tax return correctly. And this young man was horrified at the thought that he might forget to declare something. And uh, finally the pastor said, just fill it in more or less right and send it off. And if you're worried that you're, you're making an undue profit, why not give a bit, a bit more money away? If you're still worried, pray for forgiveness and then forget it. The teacher actually and the rest of the, the Bible are very clear no one is righteous. We've seen that. So he's giving ourselves a nervous breakdown, trying to be perfect. Sensible? No, it's foolishness. A sensible person is not wicked, but they're also reasonably relaxed about not being over-righteous. Verse 18 of chapter 7. It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Man who fears God will avoid all extremes or will follow both of them. Man who fears God, you see, will follow righteousness, but will not be terrified of failure. Because if we fear God, if we know God, we know him not only as the perfectly just God, but we know him as the God of mercy. If we are making a basically honest effort to be righteous, and we need not be obsessed about the times when we fail. Great reformer Martin Luther suffered from obsessive-compulsive uh, tendencies. And before he was converted, it drove him to distraction. And his very wise spiritual advisor, a man called Staupitz, was once so fed up with Luther's endless confessions of trivial, more or less non-existent sins, he advised him to go out and do something worth confessing before he came back again. Luther's great discovery was that God does freely forgive us. And it revolutionized his life. Because no longer did he need to be obsessive about confessing every last sin. He could rejoice in God's grace. In fact, he was so excited about it, he used to give some rather controversial advice to uh, people. He used to say, sin boldly and laugh at the devil. Because though the devil loves to bring those accusations and that long list before God of all the things that we have done wrong, God stamps over it paid if we have faith in Christ, as we'll see just a little later. Do not be over-righteous, says the teacher. Why destroy yourself? Teacher's third uh, bit of advice then, how to live in an unjust society. is also, uh, I think, very helpful for us. Work within the system. Chapter 8, uh, verses 2 to uh, 5. If we needed evidence that this teacher is not actually uh, Solomon, um, we need only look at some of the comments that he makes about the king to know that uh, 
He's not very impressed with him. Here we go. Obey the king's command, I says, because you, you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. It's basic wisdom, you see. What he's saying is kings are capricious. Policemen can be bad-tempered. Courts can deliver the wrong verdict. So he says, keep your head down. As the Apostle Paul says, insofar as it's possible, live at peace with all men. There may be a time when we need to stand up and be counted, but it's not all the time, he says. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. Remember uh, meeting a couple um, of uh, Christian workers called Saul and Pilar Cruz who work in what was a, a shanty town on the edge of Mexico City. They've been very much involved in regeneration of that area and they've often had to deal with government officials and they said that they had learned to be patient and quietly persistent. As the teacher says, do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. They have learned, they said, to choose their battles. As the teacher says, do not stand up for a bad cause or the king will do whatever he pleases. And they've learned to be gracious and charming, sometimes even to appeal to the vanity of those officials, because they know that very rarely will a head-on confrontation with those in authority actually work. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? In this unjust world, says the teacher, Sometimes you have to work around people. Work within the system. Do a little bit of ducking and diving. Wise advice then to us in coping with an unjust world. Advice that we need to take to heart. But that's not all the teacher has to say to us. Last week we saw, didn't we, when, it, when uh, he was exploring how he just did not know the future, we found that his pessimism of the future in the end was, was, was unsustainable. Positive optimism about the future just seemed to, 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 to bubble up. The future may not be orange, but it's certainly bright, he says. Cast your bread upon the waters. This week, we're going to see the same thing happening to him. Because the teacher, you see, is like, uh, like the wit who said, I could not be a philosopher. Hope keeps breaking through. So as he has meditated on injustice, we find actually that just occasionally a ray of real hope about justice breaks through. In the end, he says, I know justice is out there somewhere. That's most clear in, uh, in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know 
that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Throughout the book, he's been, um, he's been saying pessimistically, who knows, who knows, who knows. Now here he says, I know. At one level in verses 12 and 13 here, there is a contradiction. He says, um, I see wicked men committing a hundred crimes and living a long time. And then in verse 13, he says, because the wicked do not fear with God, they fear God, their days will not lengthen like a shadow. In other words, uh, will not get longer and longer as they get closer to the end of their day, like shadows do. Seems to be a contradiction. But I think the best way to understand it is that he's saying, the world that I see still has injustice in it. But somehow I cannot stop believing. It is built into me. It is hardwired into me. I must believe that there is justice in this world. There is justice under God. Somewhere deep in my heart, I know God is just. We see that uh, in life, complete pessimism is unsustainable. Remember very vividly when um, Thomas Hamilton walked into that primary school in Dunblane a number of years ago and killed 16 children before turning the gun on himself. I remember so vividly how the people flocked to the church in Dunblane. I remember how the newspapers spoke vividly about Hamilton's punishment in hell. Was it, was it wishful thinking that had suddenly erupted, that uh, he would be punished and somehow those dead children would be vindicated? Or was it actually that in the moment when people saw the darkest side of life, that they knew that there is eternal justice. Actually, the whole of this book concludes on that theme, as we saw at the beginning. As we saw, uh, if you were here right at the beginning, it may well be that from verses 9 onwards of chapter 12, page 677, is written by... Uh, another hand. It may conclude a little bit more positively than the teacher himself would have dared to. But uh, this is a summary of the teacher's teaching nonetheless. Let's read again those last two verses. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. But this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether it is good or evil. How the New Testament says amen to that, doesn't it? 
There will be a great day of reckoning beyond death when books are opened, when the secrets of our hearts are exposed, when Christ actually stands as a judge before us. And the teacher, had he seen that with clarity, would have shouted the most enormous hooray at that. But then he would have said, but how can I or anyone else stand before God on that day? Because no one is righteous. Paul's letter to the Romans actually explains to us how we can stand before God on that day. How Martin Luther actually, obsessed by the reality of sin in his own life, could come to a peace that could live with this dictum, do not be over-righteous, follow righteousness, but not with obsession. Because uh, in Romans uh, chapter 3, Paul says something very, very interesting. First of all, he says, now a righteousness from God apart from law, that is apart from perfect righteousness, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Do you think he includes Ecclesiastes in that? I think he does. For, says Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The teacher has told us that, hasn't he? Too right, Paul, he says. I can see that in the world I live in. And are justified freely by his grace through Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Jesus, to die on the cross so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, he's saying somehow, through Jesus' death on the cross, God has managed to be perfectly righteous as the author of Ecclesiastes has concluded, and yet still forgive people who are not righteous. He has been both just and the one who justifies. How has he done that? He's done that through what uh, some people call a great exchange. Jesus died on the cross for our sins as the Son of God so that all people who have faith now can face God in his perfect justice knowing that Jesus has paid the price. Sadly, those who do not have faith will have to face God knowing that they must pay the price. That is the only solution 
to the teacher's great conundrum. He may have given us some wisdom of how to live in an imperfect, unjust world that we need to live by. But without Jesus' death on the cross, he could never have seen the final solution of how God will judge every deed, whether hidden or seen, with perfect justice and still leave you and I free in his presence. There is something you see that Christians can see and will see. Not in this world, but in the world to come. We will see true justice where God himself pays for our sins. Perhaps you needed help this morning from the teacher. How to live in a frustrating and unjust world. Perhaps he's calling you just to live with greater realism, to be content to enjoy life. Not to be over-obsessed about righteousness. to work within the system. Perhaps you need to pray about that before him right now. Perhaps you never come to terms with the fact that God will judge with perfect righteousness every deed. And who can stand? Perhaps you need to ask God to forgive your sins through the sacrificial death of Jesus right now. Please, Lord, help us to learn these lessons, to be realistic about justice now, and, Lord, to be ready to face you who will judge with perfect skill. Please, Lord, help us to be ready. For Jesus' sake. Amen.